Evening, everybody. Ready to talk about the Lord some more? All right, let's do that from Luke's Gospel. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to everybody online, wherever you might be in the world. We're glad you're joining us. Seemed like there was something I wanted to say or ask before we got started, but I can't think of it now. So if I think of it later, I'll just, I'll catch up. That's what I'll do. Remind myself. All right. A little bit of review. John's preaching. He preached that the blank is laid to the blank of the trees. Do you remember that part? Acts is laid to the root of the trees. And that the blank will be gathered in. But the blank will be burned. The chaff will be burned. And if the chaff's going to be burned, what do you normally talk about with regard to chaff? But the wheat. You gather the wheat in because that's, that's what you worked for to get that wheat. But the chaff will be burned. This was part of the blank John preached. Now the word I'm putting in that blank is, is the whole reason that I'm talking about this. And by the way, that's the text you'll find it in chapter 3, 7, 18. This is what all of this was called. All of this refer, was referred to the gospel. If you look at verse chapter 3, and I believe it's verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached the gospel to the people. What's the word gospel mean? Good news. Euangelion, where we get the word evangelism. So the good news is what John is preaching but the question is, how are, how's this message about the axe laying, being laid to the root of the trees and the chaff being burned, how is that good news? Is, is there any way to see that as good news? What's that? Oh, if you cut a bad tree down, you don't have to deal with it? Okay. And that's, that's where Jesus is just about going to start. Uh, when we start reading about Jesus, this idea of the axe being laid to the root of the trees, he's going to root some things up that never should have been growing, never should have been planted, never should have been coming to fruition. That's part of his ministry, and that's what John's talking about. When you're trying to live right and there's something not right, that needs to be dealt with. And that's one of the hardest lessons we need to learn in life because it's so easy to look the other way at something in your own life that needs to be corrected. And John is saying, I'm going to tell you some good news. Some trees that need to be cut out and rooted up, and they're going to be cut out and rooted up. The wheat's going to be gathered in, but just like you know we do it every day in, in our agricultural society, John might say, the chaff's going to be burned up. And that's going to have, that's got a spiritual application. That's what Jesus is going to do. And that's good news, that justice is going to be done. So that's what John's preaching was, and it was called the gospel, called the good news. I just wanted to bring us back to that because as you see Jesus working, these are some of the kind of things he's going to be doing. Blank page. There we go. The genealogy of Luke provides us, or, or the genealogy Luke provides begins with blank and goes all the way back to blank, but actually blank. Who's, who's his genealogy start with? And it's right there in chapter 3, verse 23 is where it starts. It starts with Joseph. He starts with Joseph and he goes all the way back to he goes all the way back to Adam. And you see that in verse 38. 
the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, and that would be the next verse, actually God. But we, I think in terms of Adam, because Adam was an actual man. Of course, God made Adam out of the dust of the earth, and made him able to procreate through his wife Eve, and, and that's where all of that goes to. Jesus' temptations mirrored those of blank. Now, this one, we didn't really talk about it a whole lot, but this goes back to immediately after the creation when Eve was tempted. She was tempted with the forbidden fruit, and in the same way she was tempted, Jesus was tempted. She saw that it was lovely to look upon, something to be desired for food, able to make her wise, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, boastful pride of life, which... It's the same pattern John provides in his first letter. When you look at 1 John chapter 2, 15 to 17, this is what John talks about. These three categories of sin. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life. You see that in Genesis 3, when Eve is tempted. You see it in the garden, not the garden, in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted. And John lays it out clearly in 1 John chapter 2. And every... Sin, every temptation that you and I face falls into one of these three categories. It seems like it ought to be more complex than that, but really it's not. Isn't that interesting? I I think this is kind of a fascinating thing, and God outlines this for us all the way from just immediately after creation to right now to every day. Nothing's changed. You think in 6,000 years of human history something might change, but these things don't change. That's a great thing about being a Christian. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. But, but you don't have to wait for updates. You, you got it all right now. And it's as up-to-date as it'll ever be or has ever been. So there's the answers to those questions. The genealogy, genealogy Luke provides begins with Joseph, goes all the way back to Adam, but actually God. Jesus' temptations mirrored those of Eve and followed the pattern John provides in his first letter. All right, readings. Let's do a little reading. Chapter 4. We read last week, 1 to 13, talked about the temptations. So we're picking up at verse 14, going down to verse 30. Who would like to do that? Anybody? All right, Larry. By the way, Larry, did you holler at me in... No, I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> were you in Deacon's Hardware the other day and holler at me? What is that, what? In Deacon's Hardware. Do you know, you know where Deacon's Hardware is? All right. Well, here's the deal. I was in Deacon's Hardware. You know when you go in the front? No, you don't know because you don't go there. Well, if you go in, you, <clears throat> you make an immediate right, and you go in, and there's all these stock drawers where you can get nuts and bolts and those kinds of things, and I was, I was picking out a set of, anyway. I put it back. Somebody walked by and said, hey, Marty. And it sounded exactly like you. And I thought, oh, hey. I almost said out loud, hey, Larry. Matter of fact, I might have. And I went around and I looked and I couldn't see you. Couldn't see anybody. I, I'm going crazy, I think. But we're going to, maybe I'll gain some sanity reading about Jesus here. I just happened to, when you volunteered to read, you made me think about that time. Sorry for that little diversion. So you've got 14 to 30. Who wants to take 31 to 44? Any volunteers? All right, Robert, good man. Good. And Jesus returned to Galilee, and the power of the Spirit 
and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found a place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we hold was done at Capernaum, do heal in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the, on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching because his message was delivered with authority. In the synagogues, there was a, mass, a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone. What business do you have with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, it came out of him without doing any harm, doing him any harm. And, am and amazement came upon them all, and they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and then come out. And the news about him was spreading into every lo locality of the surrounding region. Then he got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and served him. 
Now while the sun was setting, all those who had had any who were sick and with various diseases brought them to him, and he was laying his hands on each one of them and healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. And yet he was rebuking them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was that he was the Christ. Now when day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place, and the crowds were searching for him, and they came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must also preach the kingdom of God to the other cities, because I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. All right, thank you all for reading. What does it mean he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit? Did he always have the Holy Spirit? He always had the Spirit. We always have the Spirit, but sometimes the Spirit is more obvious. And there was something about the way he returned to Galilee now. What, is, what has he just done, by the way? Out in the wilderness, fasting, 40 days, tempted by the devil. Now he's, he's ready to begin his ministry. And Luke says he returns to Galilee, not Jerusalem, not Judea, but to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. What's the first town he goes to? Where he grew up in Nazareth. He goes to Nazareth. And it says he was teaching in their synagogues. And how did the people respond when he taught? They heard him teaching with authority. They what? They heard him teaching with authority. Okay. He was, he was being praised. That's what Luke records for us in verse 15. He had authority. He spoke as one with authority. He only gave them the message that God told him to give them. Yes. He speaking directly from what God has given him. And later on when he tells the apostles he's going to send the Holy Spirit, he says what the Holy Spirit's going to give you is, is what's going to come from me. So everything, there's a, there's a lesson I'm, I'm working on about the, the New Testament, all of the New Testament being the words of Christ. I know we have such things as red-letter Bibles. And when you read a red-letter Bible, what do the red letters represent? Those are the things that Jesus supposedly said himself. And we get the idea, oh, Jesus said that, so somehow maybe that's more important than the rest. And no, the whole thing is the word of God. And Jesus said certain things and those things are recorded, but the rest of it is just as much his word. He gave the message to the apostles to preach, and that's what they preached. That's what they wrote. Everything you're reading in the New Testament is from God. There's none of this stuff, well, Paul said that, or Peter said that, or John said No, they said it, but where'd they get it from? They got it from Jesus. It's the New Testament of Jesus Christ. It's not the New Testament of Jesus and the apostles and whoever else wanted to chime in. It's the New Testament of Jesus. And those guys said that when they wrote it and when they preached it. Look at verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, what did he do? He went to the synagogue. What's that tell us? He had a habit. He had a custom. He went to the synagogue. 
went to church, as we would say it today, although technically going to church is inaccurate. You are the church. You don't go to the church if you are the church. But we get the idea. It's, uh, what do we call it, accommodative language. It's like, I, I like to use the illustration of a sunrise. There is no sunrise. It's an earth roll. But that kind of sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? To us, it looks like the sun is rising, and so we say earth, earth sunrise. Earth, yeah, that's what we say. Anyway, so he goes to the synagogue, as was his custom, and we might think, well, why would God need to go to the synagogue? Because the whole point of the synagogue is to worship God, and, and he is God. And what happens when he goes to the synagogue in Nazareth? Absolutely. My, my oldest daughter, Jamie, was talking about this. And she said, the word of God reading the word of God. How cool is that? But that's what he does in Nazareth. He, he's brought up in Nazareth, as was his habit. He goes to the synagogue when he goes to Nazareth. He stood up to read. They handed him the scroll of Isaiah, which I think that's also interesting, too. He didn't choose the scroll of Isaiah. Isaiah was handed to him, and he picks the place to read. By the way. Just a, just a note of interest. Isaiah had not yet been divided into chapters and verses. Isn't that handy for you and me? What if you had to go to Isaiah and it was just Isaiah written out from beginning to end and you had to figure out, when you talk about writing in your Bible, I think we do a lot more writing in our Bibles if we didn't have chapters and verses. But he didn't have a chapter and verse to go to. He just took that scroll, rolled it out, found the place, and read Jesus it sounds wrong to say he was a scholar because all scholarship comes from him. So he's reading, and as Will said, he reads the 61st chapter of Isaiah. And he closed the book in verse 20, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and like Luke tells us, you can picture this, the eyes of everybody were on him. Because he's already been teaching. And people have heard his teaching. And they're impressed. And he just read from the scroll of Isaiah. What's he going to say about that? And what he says is, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I wonder if they really comprehended that he was actually. I don't think so. I. What's about to happen? Yeah, it, it, it's everybody speaking well of him. Wow, this guy, he's a great teacher. And then he teaches them something that goes against what they want to believe. And they say, well, okay, let's, let's kill him now. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that's pretty drastic. But that's, that's what happens. To me, I, I read this and I think, oh, here's a warning. For me, if I have presuppositions... And as I study my Bible, I'm reading the Bible and studying the Bible through the filter of my presuppositions. I'm doing it the wrong way. Whatever I presuppose needs to be set aside in favor of what I'm looking at in the scriptures. That's, that's the honest way to study. And it's very difficult to do that as people of flesh. But that's, that's what we've got to work towards, will you? In verse 29, it states, they rose up and 
cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. It's hard for me to envision that they, they led him like almost willingly, like he willingly went with them. Were they pushing and shoving him? Were they, was he, you know, arguing with them on the way there? And then once he gets there, he just calmly passed through them. Was that, was that him? You know, they weren't able to get their hands on him. Did he fight back through the crowd? Like, how did that unfold in that scenario? It's just, you know, just a couple verses and kind of, kind of leans over it. But I'd like to know more of how, how exactly did that go down? You know. Who else would like to know more about how that went down? Yeah. I don't know where we're going to go to find that because it, it's the, the one more verse, but that's, that's what it says happened. Don? It's really simple because in the time of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, and they could not find the door to the house because it was made here. Well, they were struck with blindness in Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Well, it says they couldn't find it. To be, couldn't find it is, is brain blind, you might say. They could go home, but they could not find the door. Same thing here. Jesus just made them lose it in their head. Well, after the resurrection, you might remember, he was walking with a couple of guys, and they didn't recognize him. He was seen by Mary. Mary. She was holding on to him, and she didn't recognize him. And you would not recognize him either. I, I don't think that's how he appeared after the resurrection. If he come back from the As a matter of fact, if he if he still looked like he did on the cross, she would know that's definitely Jesus. So. And this guy was one hundred percent. He would have looked. I'm, I'm assuming like he was when he was his regular self, but she didn't recognize him. Other folks didn't recognize him. So I, the bottom line is, but here's the deal about that. If Luke was making this stuff up, if he was guided by his own mind, don't you think a little bit of elaboration would have been apropos right there? Instead of just stating the fact, he just walked through the mist and was gone. Because as a human writer, you would know people are going to want an explanation. I want an explanation. God says, you don't need an explanation. I'm telling you what happened. Just shut up and read it and go on. <laughs> Do you believe me or not? In the beginning, what happened? God created the heavens and the earth. And then how many verses are there to explain just how he did that? Well, there's one, really. It's repeated a few times. It says, and God said, let there be light. And God said, and God said. And every time God says, things happen, and we have no clue how. God knows how. The Hebrew writer says, we have faith that the things that appear are made from things which do not appear. And you think about that. What is everything made of that, that we know now? 
that science has revealed everything is made up of atoms. What's an atom? It's a bunch of space with little tiny things moving around real fast in it. What are those little tiny things? If you could go down small enough to see what those little tiny things were, what would they be? Yeah, that, that's what... That's what <laughs> and morons, is somebody say? <laughs> I think we know where the morons are. Anyway, what I'm saying is the, the smaller you go, the more you find out that what the Hebrew writer said is absolutely true. It, where is it? It's, and when you get, get down to where you can't see anything else, what you're going to find is God. He's the one who brings everything into existence by speaking it and when he speaks for the last time, everything's going to burn up. It's going to be gone. And so here is the word of God, speaking the word of God, and he passes through their midst, and, and we're not told how that happened, maybe because we wouldn't understand. Jamie? So I read and I study, and I, you know, reading this uh, 24 through uh, 27, where he's basically saying, Somebody was sent to that region where there were a bunch of sick people, but they only healed one. Right. And I see that, and I get that. But there are times when I read that that I don't see that, and I'm going, why are they mad? They were just so happy that he, you know, was in all glory and reading with authority and all these things, and then he turns around and almost like he's giving them a backhanded compliment, and some of them get it, and some of them don't. And the ones that don't then feel insulted. And that's what makes them mad. And it, it's, it's who, who are the two people he talks about? I don't mean to cut you off, but I, this might help. The prophets Elijah and Elisha. Elisha. But, but the two people that were served. Um, a widow in Zarephath. Okay. And Naaman. Naaman. What, what about that widow? What, was she Jewish? She was not. She was a Gentile. What about Naaman? He was a Gentile. So Jesus is saying, back in the days of this prophet that you respect and admire, look at what he did. But he didn't do it for Jewish people. He did it for Gentiles. And there, it, it seems to me, this is my estimation, their nationalistic sensitivities are sparked. It's like Jesus knew, this is how I'm going to do what John said I was going to do. I'm going to lay the axe to the root of the trees. you got this idea that Jews are better and higher than everybody else and that they're the only people on the face of the planet that God cares about. And I, need, I need to straighten you out on that. That's not the way it is. I probably did, so let's just move on. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hope I did because if, if you remember that, great. That's what I wanted to get nailed down. To, to keep the grasp of it, because when you explain it, I'm like, I never really knew that, and I, that makes sense. And then, as time is going on, and it, you know, couldn't remember the gist of it, you know, and I couldn't draw it back out. And that's kind of like what she was talking about. It's just, he 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 shows them, since they're Jews, they know, and and then he, he he's it was clear to them. 
And, and none of this is anything against Israel or the Jewish people. I love the Jewish people, and the reason I love the Jewish people is because they are the only people on the planet we know about that God specifically created. And how did he create them? He started with one man. He called Abraham. There were no Jews. There was no Israel. He called Abraham said, I'm going to promise you a son. And from this son, what am I going to do? I'm going to save the world. That's the reason the Jews exist, so that God would have a nation that he could work with for 1,500 years. By the way, what's the name of Israel? What does Israel mean? He who struggles with God. And that's what Israel did for 1,500 years, and they're still doing it. God was struggling with them, and we see him with that nation going, wow, he's really patient. He's, he, he gets to the point where he brings down judgment, but if, if you work with him, he'll bring you along and forgive you. There's always a remnant of people. We see in Jewish history that God is going to work with and bring back and restore. And I want to be part of that remnant. I don't know about you. Well, I think I do know about you. I think that's why you're here tonight. You want to be part of that remnant too. And the Jews are not there because God said, I just want to save one people. The Jews exist because God said, I want to save everybody. But to do that, i got to have a nation so I can give this nation a law so everybody can see you can't keep that law. And just because you are the chosen people doesn't mean everything's going to go right for you because the chosen people, the ten northern tribes, went off into Assyrian captivity. Captivity? That's a new word, isn't it? Captivity, never to be seen again, more or less. They really were, but... And then Babylon came and took the southern tribes. Israel didn't exist for 70 years. And then Cyrus, a heathen pagan king, says, I'm sending you back. And he hadn't even read Isaiah because Isaiah had said long before that that's what's going to happen. This is what we're studying on Sunday morning in Mike's class. Cyrus sends him back. And he sends him back at the right time. And Cyrus doesn't even know he's in God's book. So you see these things and you go, oh, God's working something out here. Jesus didn't come to save Jews alone. He came to send, what does John 3.16 say? God so loved the world, Okies included. He loves us all, and that's that's what that was about. So I, that's what I believe happened here. He's in Capernaum in the synagogue, and he's he's making this point from reading Isaiah. What does Isaiah say? He has sent me to proclaim release to the Jewish captives and recovery of sight to the to the Jewish blind people. To set free Jewish people who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord to Jewish people. No, that's that's not how it reads. Jesus is saying this is fulfilled in your ears, in your eyes. And then everything was going great. He had them. And when he had them, he really messed up. Because he told them about... Elisha and those two Gentile people and made them mad. He shouldn't have done that, right? How else are you going to lay the axe to the root of the trees? How else are you going to deal with ideas that are wrong unless you bring up those ideas and say, listen, you're thinking this, you're believing this, we've got to do away with that. That's the wrong way to think. That's what has to be done. And that's what Jesus is doing. And they're going to kill him for it. Nobody says, well, you know, that's a different way of thinking about it. Never thought about it like that. Let me go home and think about that. No, let's just kill you. So that's another part of the tree that needs to be cut down is this radical thinking. 
It gets us in trouble too. Anytime you and I get this idea that we're more important than anybody else. Jesus used the phrase, uh, the least of these, and I try to remind myself of that. The least of these, the least of these. You do it to the least of these, you've done it to me, Jesus said. All right. Uh, so, I can't answer you, Will. Luke didn't answer. But to me, that's a testament that this book is from God. And just one more. Because if men were writing this, they would have filled in something there. Made something up. All right. Verse 31. He came down to where? Capernaum, a city of Galilee. Nazareth is also in Galilee, but he's, he's going down to Capernaum, down there next to the Sea of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Um, let's see what I got here. Let's pass this up for a minute. Got to go to Galilee a little over a year ago and see the city of Capernaum. That, brothers and sisters, is what remains of what almost certainly was the synagogue in which Jesus was doing this in Capernaum. Not Nazareth. Not Nazareth. This is Capernaum. Different town. You see the the darker line of stones. Those stones, those who research these things and, and dig this stuff up, are telling us that those darker stones are from the time of Christ. So they were there. Later in the uh, 4th century, I think it was the 300s, they, they built with the white, the lighter colored stones on top of that. But those dark stones supposedly were there in the time of Christ. There's another view of it that's the same, same wall. This is the north wall. And let's see, how would you looking at it there? Yeah. To your left, which would be east, is the Sea of Galilee. And if you are a really good rock thrower, you might be able to throw a rock into it. Because it's, it's not very far from there at all. This is how close the synagogue was to the Sea of Galilee. I don't know how well you could see that. You can just kind of make out the structure. This is, uh, you know, that you, when you go to a place like this, they have those boards with all kinds of information on it. I took a picture of it, or Jamie took a picture. Oh, thanks. Even better. Yes, I like that. See, Charles, I couldn't, I couldn't enlarge that when I was working on it today. I need Charles to come in there and show me how to do that. I, I, uh, what's it when you? I cropped. I cropped it, and I thought after I cropped it, I could enlarge it, but it wouldn't enlarge after I cropped it. So anyway, that's, that's what they believe it looked like initially. Come on. Where are you going? There we go. Well, it, uh, it's not huge, but I'll show you the inside here in a second. Here's another picture of the wall from the outside. And there's a picture of the interior, a couple of different pictures. So it was, it was sizable. I didn't measure it, but we had, uh, we had a crew of about 20 people in there, and we were, like, rolling around in the place. We had lots of room, lots of room for plenty of people to be in there. This is, this is the, uh, the synagogue in Capernaum. What's that? Um, as big as this I don't think so. I think it might be maybe two-thirds the size of the interior. So it, it's a sizable building, but not massive. 
I imagine it's pretty good size for its day. Another picture of the interior. That's, if I'm not mistaken, that's looking east. And I, I put this in there. What did, what did Micah, Malachi rather, what did he say John was supposed to do? Not John, but the, the one who was preparing the way for the Lord. Turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. Turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. I just thought, this is really cool. I got to be in the synagogue where Jesus probably was with my grandson. How neat is that? Gary. If, if what now? Turning the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the hearts of the children back to the fathers. Does that, does that imply some of the particular issues they were having? I don't know about that. I mean, why would it say turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children? Did they not, did they not have the right heart for their children? I, I think what was happening to a, to a large degree was, well, if you go back to Deuteronomy 6, in... Uh, the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy, we read what, it's a part of scripture that's been given a name called the Shema, but it's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's in verse four of Deuteronomy chapter six. That's, that's the most well-known a Jewish text, well, I know of, it's, it's given that name. But if you back up to verse 1, it says, This is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, so that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. And then he gets down to verse uh, 7. says, You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, teach this to your family. Teach this to your children. It's supposed to, these are for you and your sons and your grandchildren right on down the line. And then when Paul writes to Timothy, you remember what he says? The things that I have taught you do what? Teach them to faithful men that they might be able to teach others also. The, the gospel, the good news, the church is supposed to be self-perpetuating. We keep spreading the seed of the word of God and it keeps on growing. And I think, to, in my estimation, that's what Malachi was talking about through the spirit. It's going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children, hearts of the children back to the fathers, bring, make these relationships what they ought to be. Because everything's, everything's founded on the honoring of authority. You honor your father and mother. That's the first commandment. It's the first commandment with promise that you might live long in the land and it might go well with you. Everything's based on authority, and I think that's probably the biggest problem in our nation right now is we lack a respect for authority. And part of the reason in our culture we now lack a respect for authority is because there are very few authorities that are, are worth following. I know that's a general statement, but to a great degree, we have lost our moral compass, and people understand that. And it's like, so why should I follow you? Why should I listen to you? 
But when you get your heart turned back to your children and your hearts are turned back to your father, your parents, and you start listening to each other, following the ways of God, everything comes together. That's the foundation. You don't have that, you don't have a foundation. So, so I'm thinking that must have been some kind of an issue. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount does something that wasn't done very much prior to that time. He kept referring to God as your father, our father, our father in heaven, your father in heaven. A relationship that was not known so much in Jewish culture before that time. But that's how Jesus taught it. That's how Jesus Jesus. That's what he said. <laughs> and so here in the synagogue... Studying the life of Jesus and seeing him read the scriptures and listening and learning how the Jews reacted. I think about the Samaritan woman and Jesus in the conversation with her. And finally, he stayed with them a couple of days. And they believed that he was the savior of the world. It says that right there. And I think about how do we get there? I, I need to emulate Jesus. I need to know the word well enough to tell others about it. I was talking to Mike earlier. This was Sunday. And I'm not going to get into the conversation, but he basically commented. He said, that's what happens when you finally commit yourself to God and you give yourself to God, the thing starts happening. And I wonder if sometimes maybe I think all of us question that. How, how strong is my faith? Because just like it said about Jesus, he, he went to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Okay. Was he not in the power of the Spirit all the time? Was he not full bore all the time? Well, there, there must have been something different about that point. Coming out of the wilderness, having been tempted, and now he's going off in the power of the Spirit and now you understand he did that to begin his ministry. He's getting started to do what he came to do. And one of the first things he's doing is laying the axe to the root of the trees, dispelling some bad ideas, and being uh, having a, an attempt made on his life for that. And so he, he leaves there. He goes to Galilee from Judea and starts preaching in the synagogue there. Jamie? could be I, I, I don't know I also know I can be working on a project and I'm looking at my bench and I know I'm looking for a drill that is bright green and I don't see it and I'm standing there and I just had that thing it's got to be right there and it is but I'm not seeing it I can't explain that either I'm not saying that's the same thing but I'm saying if it's that easy for a grown man to not be able to see what he knows he's looking for and it's right in front of him 
How much trouble would God have walking through the midst of people and, and not being noticed? Better finish up these pictures here. Uh, this is looking out of the synagogue to the east, and that is supposed to be Peter's house. He had a fancy place, didn't he? He was real modern. Actually, that structure is over top of what they believe is Peter's house, and they think it's Peter's house for a number of reasons. One of the things is it you can when they studied it, they said this started out being a single-family dwelling, and then it grew, and somebody built onto it so that groups could meet here, apparently, and it had scripture uh, in in the walls, inside. There were passages from the, the Bible, and so they're thinking, this must have been Peter's house, and it was. it's just, you can see stones throw from, from the synagogue. And there's a better picture of what's underneath there. You, you can't really tell even when you go there because you're not allowed to go down into that place, but... Anyway, just wanted you to see this is Capernaum. That was the synagogue. This is what's believed to be Peter's house. In 1986, I believe it was, they had a drought, 86 or 84. And a drought's a bad thing, but the waters of the Sea of Galilee receded enough that this boat started poking up through the ground. They thought, wow, here's a ship. And they dug this thing up. The, the way they got it out of there, it was so fragile, they filled it with foam, and they moved it as one piece uh, out of there, and then they somehow removed the foam and they're, everything that they have tried to do to figure out how old this is points to the time of Christ. So this is the type of boat that the apostles probably used. Uh, and I, I put this in here because when we get down to chapter 5, he's going to get in the boat, push out a little way, going to preach from the boat. Has there, there's been two bells, hasn't there? Oh, I need to quit. Anyway, uh, just a few pictures to show you what it looks like over there now where we were studying. All right. You guys are great. Appreciate you.